Women's Fight Back, issue 26, page, part 2, pages 9 to 14. Page 9. Re-examining Society's Stories Around Rape by Roxana Fraser. A review of rape from Lucretia to Me Too by Matthew Sanyal, Verso 2019. I spent my whole life avoiding rape, looking over my shoulder before I put the key in the door. Sadly, it's an experience that most, if not all women, are familiar with, which is why Mithu Sanyal's book Rape from Lucretia to Me is so welcome. Covering a huge amount of material and using moving personal accounts throughout, the book is a bold and refreshing assessment of the gender narratives and social roots underpinning of how society views rape and rape victims. Trauma and healing. <clears throat> Sanyal looks at the language he used to talk about rape and how that impacts how rape is processed by victims and judged by society. Readers are invited to reflect on how rape has throughout history destroyed a woman's life. Societal perceptions have informed how a rape victim should feel. For honour to be seen to be intact, that sense of shame should never go away. You are told you never get over it. Any other response other than trauma is taken to suggest that you are not a real victim and is met with disbelief and hostility. This is despite, as Sanyal emphasises, many victims of violence do get over it. People experience and process violence differently, and each of these different experiences is normal, shared by countless others, and absolutely valid. I don't think the concepts she covers are all new, but Sanyal's book could be a catalyst to start new dialogue about how we assess rape and sexual boundaries. Sanyal says, quotes, because we lack social scripts for victims healing after rape, we also lack scripts for rapists to reform and re-enter society, end quotes. Quoting Brensel, she continues, quotes, If, for example, a person is living in a situation where their boundaries are transgressed regularly, healing will be harder. That applies not only to violent personal relationships, but to exploitative working conditions. Healing begins with the most basic things, end quotes. In other words, poor social conditions and unequal power relations can be an obstacle to healing from trauma. Racism. In her book, Black and White Thinking, Sanyal points to the recurrent trope of the black rapist and draws parallels with the media and public response to the widely reported incident at Cologne Cathedral on New Year's Eve 2016, which saw 500 reports of crimes of a sexual nature, 21 of them sexual assaults. Local and international press reports focus on the perpetrators being foreign men of Arabic and North African appearance, and the aftermath saw a clamouring for refugees to be sent home and for increased measures to deter illegal immigration. Samuel writes, quotes, The stranger behind the bush is back, only now he is the stranger of Arabic appearance. End quotes. These are nationalist, anti immigrant, and colonial narratives that we see played out in Britain too. Man and masculinity. Samuel also interrogates how we understand gender. She quotes Bell Hooks. 
quotes, So far the feminist movement has primarily focused on male violence and as a consequence lends credibility to sexist stereotypes that suggest men are violent, women are not, men are abusers, women are victims. This type of thinking allows us to ignore the extent to which women with men in the society accept and perpetuate the idea that it is acceptable for a dominant part or group to maintain power over the dominated by using coercive force, end quotes. Looking at case studies on sexual violence challenges simplistic narratives of women always being victims and men always being perpetrators. Saniel cites one study which revealed that 79% of perpetrators who forced penetration on men were women. Sexual violence and rape is, of course, a deeply gendered phenomenon, however, Samuel presents evidence that the rates of incidences of rape are highest where an institution or community is hierarchical and favours rigid gender roles where, quotes, hierarchical command structures are the opposite of consensual communication where decisions are negotiated collectively, end quotes. Prisons, boarding schools and above all, the military are all examples where this is the case. In these institutions, misogynistic and anti-individualistic behaviour are systemic. Quotes, the moment a person enters the military, they surrender the right of self-determination over their bodies. End quotes. People are forced to discard or bury the feminine parts of themselves, like empathy. Saniel argues this process of institutionalized behavior is not the domain of military men alone, but military women as well. That research suggests a reduction in empathy makes it easier to disregard a person's boundaries, and when your own boundaries are regularly transgressed, you're more likely to replicate that behavior. When we have empathy for ourselves, we have empathy for others. Sanyal alludes this to the solution when she affirms, quotes, that social equity, gender equality, balance, consent, respect, and non-violent communication outside of the sexual sphere as much as within it are direct ways to prevent sexual violence, end quotes. She goes on, quotes, The more equal a society and the higher its opportunities for participation, the lower its rape rate. And... At the same time, we know full well that not all decisions are free, so it seems obvious that preventing abuses of power must involve reduced inequality. This means understanding that policies we might not ordinarily associate with sexual violence may have far-reaching consequences. For instance, granting people a living wage, access to education, health care and safe living conditions increase their access to self-determination and allows them to make freer choices. The bad news is that this can only be achieved through fundamental social change. The good news is that every step to reduce inequality is a direct step towards the prevention and reduction of sexual violence, as this is not restricted to questions of gender. End quotes. Here is where, for me, the book feels incomplete. Saniel is right to point to inequality, meant in the broadest terms, as the context which allows violence and abusive relations to flourish, and ending inequality as our starting point to tackling gendered violence. 
The above excerpts come incredibly close to identifying the structures that allow and per perpetuate these inequalities, but had I blinked, I could easily have missed it. The origin of the word rape, quotes, literally, the meaning of the English word rape comes from the Middle English rapen, R-A-P-P-E-N, to abduct, rubbish, snatch, carry off, which in turn comes from the Latin root reparere, or robbing. Capitalism is a system that's founded on robbing us of our value as human beings. Without the critique of capitalism, we are only ever looking for changes at the limits of a capitalist society. <clears throat> Labour women's solidarity with domestic violence refugees, refugees by Janine Booth, women's officer, lose CLP. Lou's Labour Party have combined practical solidarity with political campaigning and policy discussion in taking on the issues of violence against women. Six months into lockdown, we asked Labour members in Lou's constituency to donate clothes, toys and other items in our local women's refuge. We knew that lockdown had made domestic violence more common, leaving an abusive relationship more difficult and refuges unable to meet demand. Driving round our patch of East Sussex collecting donations also meant talking with members about the need for political campaigning. We had no intention of plugging the funding gap left by Tory cuts without also challenging those cuts. So we asked members to take part in Women Aid's online campaign against cuts and pass a resolution at Alou's Labour Women's Branch meeting setting out the devastating effects of underfunding. The resolution asked for Labour's manifesto for the then-approaching East Sussex County Council election to include a clear pledge to reverse the Tory Council's 20% cut to its funding of the county's four women refuges made in 2016. The constituency Labour Party passed the resolution unanimously but no one was quite sure what the process was for getting the pledge into the manifesto. Many inquiries and phone calls later, we got a version of it included in an election leaflet. We also submitted the resolution, tweaked to make it relevant nationally, to Labour Women's Conference, where it was composited with others past and chosen to go forward to Labour Party Conference. Labour does not allow its branches to meet in the two months before an election for reasons that do not convince me, but we wanted to carry on discussing violence against women, so we set up a discussion group which met online. Our local refuge was delighted with the great piles of donations we passed on, and we topped this up with the money raised by selling the rest of the donations at a boot sale. We will continue to do our best to call clearly for Labour councils to reverse cuts to refuge funding. It is important that concrete acts of resistance like this are not drowned out by appeals to law and order from the leadership. Pages 11 to 14 Why and How Trans People Exist, Work and Struggle by Zach Muddle Review of Transgender Marxism by Jules Joanne Gleason and Ellie Aruk, Pluto Press 2021. Marxism offers many tools necessary for any radical fight for trans liberation to succeed, but the theoretical basis for this is rarely fleshed out. 
transgender Marxism collects several insightful articles and threads on topic topics of particular interest for transgender people and activists, usually broadly Marxist perspectives. As a collection, it is less a coherent whole, more sometimes contradictory Canap selection. Yet it is one of the first books attempting to approach this issue from an openly Marxist analytic perspective. I touch on some of the themes below. Why are there trans people? In his essay, Noah Zazenis focuses on agency using social cognitive theory, SCT. SCT accounts for psychological, social and systemic influences on gender. These influences can compete and gender develops over a whole lifetime, rather than being either innate, as in some theories, or developing predominantly in early childhood, as in others. This allows both more fluidity and greater agency. By this account, quotes, processes of gender identity construction rely on a reciprocal relationship between personal, behavioural and in environmental factors, end quotes. The degree of restriction in a given society influences the relative importance of these three factors. In rigidly gendered societies, environmental factors are more important, personal factors less so. But but individuals, to varying extents, make choices and play a part in constructing their social environments. SCT sets out three types of environmental influence. Modelling passive observation of appropriately gendered behaviour like via media and the like, inactive experience where individuals engage in gendered behaviour and adjust it according to their perceptions of others' reactions, and direct tuition, explicit instruction for appropriate gender conduct. This seems more sophisticated than most alternative theories, allowing room for agency, including agency for CIS, as well as trans and non-binary readers. Quotes, Early life punishment for gender nonconformity is often regarded as characteristically trans experience. In reality, however, not only do CIS people share similar enacted experiences, but successfully dis- discouragement from gender transgression constitutes more of the cisgender phenomenon. End quotes. Sazanis also delves deeper into the process of transition when individuals subconsciously or consciously seek groups or communities of trans people who, via the modes CSD sets out, help to reproduce and model different types of trans identity. Some pro-trans activists may consider this point taboo, as it sounds like anti-trans scaremongering that transgenderism is contagious or spreading trans ideology. But if transgenderism is contagious, that's fine. We want a world where individuals are more supported in transitioning, with more happy and diverse trans and non-binary people that can be positive and empowering models. Likely more people would transition, or experiment with transition, who may in different societies have embraced cisgender identities. To me, that sounds like a more interesting society, allowing a flowering of individuality, creativity and personal agency. Similar themes crop up elsewhere in this volume. 
in her essay Anya Heisler Weisser Flower, flits from an interesting but wrong left communist exposition of the modern world to spiritual nonsense, from quite extreme identity politics to a transhumanist and cosmological futurism. But hidden under the chaff is a thought-provoking argument that gender sex is a real abstraction, analogous to, although not a direct parallel to, value. Value is the socially necessary abstract labour embodied in a commodity according to Marxist analysis of capitalism. This is an abstract way of understanding commodities and their exchange, which value for exchange, value and price, mediates. Most people do not consciously think about value, and yet they think and act on the basis of it. You may critique capitalism, but you still need to use money to buy commodities, and will in accordance with their price, and thereby value. Contemplating gender, sex in analogous terms is at least thought-provoking. Work, Labour and Class Struggle In a chapter, Michelle O'Brien looks at trans people's experiences and struggles at work. Trans and queer people, O'Brien notes, are disproportionately found in certain types of occupation. This isn't surprising in the USA, where the majority of employers can openly fire someone for being trans. Or indeed in the UK, where one in three employees admitted in 2018 that they would be less likely to hire a trans person, despite such discrimination being illegal here. Trans and queer people thus often find themselves working in sex toy retail, or for LGBTIQ or HIV charities and NGOs. O'Brien documents class struggle within these workplaces, often between trans-queer workers and their trans-queer bosses. This provided a much-needed antidote to liberal and identitarian fetishization of LGBT plus communities, often portrayed as homogenous or at least harmonious. As socialists, we should aim to some extent to divide communities on class lines and to demarcate them on political lines and build radical working class campaigns on LGBTIQ issues. Different class divisions appear among sex workers who are disproportionately trans. Sex workers who meet clients online tended to be more middle class and more able to keep themselves safe compared to sex workers who met clients in person. There needed there needn't necessarily be an antagonism here between more and less deprived sections of the working class and petty bourgeois, but the reality O'Brien sketches calls for more nuance than some approach the subject with. Class backgrounds also impact people's transitions. Some working-class, black or Latinx, trans-queer communities and cultural scenes provide limited forms of protection from or resistance to extreme poverty and state violence. They also, quotes, support many young trans-feminine people to come out and transition much earlier in, in life than many of their middle-class and white counterparts, in quotes. 
Conversely, some middle-class people fear transitioning as a threat to their middle-class status, where they may become forced into retail, sex work or other culturally and economically <coughs> working-class jobs. O'Brien's contribution helps flesh out the interrelations in individuals' experience at least between class and trans oppression. It re-centers class struggle and makes clear that gender regulation at work, as in families, is a major feature of bourgeois class rule. Kate Doyle Griffiths builds on the writings of Kim Moody and of Beverly Silver, arguing that wage social reproduction, education and healthcare are strategically crucial for workplace organizing. Griffiths argues that, quotes, the skills to manage trans and queer existence on a social level lend themselves to exploitation as skilled labour in the sphere of social reproduction and hospitality, in which it is more difficult to be comfortably out, end quotes. For example, she refers to code switching, whereby queer and trans people learn to change their behaviour in response to the anticipated reactions of others, masking and managing our own feelings to do so. She hypothesises, quotes, that queer and trans workers are vastly overrepresented in the work of paid social reproduction, end quotes. On the face of this, this is in tension with O'Brien's view that trans people are generally found in tech sex work and third sector roles. Griffiths does not seem to offer statistical evidence for her claims, and I could not find ed- evidence which either supports or undermines it. It's a hypothesis worth exploring further. One shortcoming of this book is a failure to put the contributors in dialogue with each other. Inadequately, serious commitment by the editors to open debate is exposed, for example in the introduction. The editors attempt to construct a coherent thread running through all the essays in the book, papering over ways in which they clearly disagree, contradict each other, or use the same terms with completely divergent meanings, such as trans-social reproduction. This makes for a disorientating introduction and a missed opportunity to clarify perspectives. More convincingly, Griffiths argues that fights over health care access by queer and trans people, far from a distraction from a universal class politics, adds an empowering dimension and driving force to this fight. Her exposition of the links between LGBTIQ activists and the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa is interesting, if not sufficiently emphasising the role of workers organising in that struggle. The most Trotskyist author, Virginia Goodsell, gives an interesting exposition of the fight over trans rights in Brazil. The volume as a whole would be would do better with wider consideration of trans struggles around the world, beyond the Anglosphere and beyond Christianity-dominated countries and cultures. Trans experiences. Well, G.N. Hode Zoo, Zoe Belinsky and Nathaniel Dixon all give interesting insights in the trans experience. I found Belinsky's chapter, Transgender and Disabled Bodies Between Pain and the Imaginary, the most thought-provoking. Phenomenology studies structures of consciousness as experienced from the first-person point of view. 
It studies the structures of experiences, including thought, perception, imagination, memory, desire, emotion, volition, embodied action, bodily awareness and social activity. Its insights have contributed towards many areas of philosophy and psychology. One component of these structures is intentionality, the way an experience can be directed towards things in the world. Mental states can be of, about, or represent properties, things, or states of affairs. Maurice Merleau-Ponty was a Marxist phenomenologist, building on experimental psychology and developing a phenomenology that emphasizes the body and embodiment. For Merleau-Ponty, the body's relationship with space is intentional, and I can, rather than I think, so that the body is not in space but lives or inhabits it. Belinsky takes Merleau-Ponty as a starting point for developing a further phenomenology, particularly around labour, and with that phenomenology an understanding of trans and disabled experiences, experiences in which the body clearly plays an important different role compared to those of cis and or able-bodied people. Belinsky replaces I can with I cannot, an awareness and experience of the world through our limitations. We are, Belinsky argues, stimulated to work by pain or to avoid pain. We use the imagination to work. We create plans in our mind and realize them concretely through conscious physical labor and so move from I cannot to I can. In doing so, we overcome pain and create the means to alleviate pain in the future. I feel hungry, so I imagine going to the kitchen, preparing a meal from ingredients there, then eating it, and then act upon that plan. I wish to not feel hungry in the future, so engage in waged work, earn money, buy food with that money, and restock my kitchen. Reproducing ourselves, our ability to work, our labour power, the movement from the I cannot to the I can, is mediated by the capitalist mode of production. It requires us to sell our labour power to capitalists, to work using means of production that they own, producing products that they will own, then giving our wages back to them in exchange for the necessities of existence that our class produced. Our labour, working under bosses for another's private profit, is alienated. We feel a disconnect from the experience of using labour of our imagination to overcome pain. The positive aspects of labour and the aspects which create the conditions of possibility of experiences are largely obscured. The theft of our labour power and of the means of us recreating it are also obscured. Quotes, the transition to I can is actually the product of conscious human labour. It is not a bare fact of life but must be created through physical toil. This labour creating human beings in a fit condition to enter the market and exchange their labor labors for money wages cannot be assumed in advance, but is the work of social reproduction. Clothing, feeding, cleaning, resting. In short, the whole ensemble of relations and actions that go into reproducing ourselves. This is the unwaged labor by which laborers arrive as ready-made products on the labor market with the I can in tow. In other words, workers are expected to appear at their workplaces with their capacities fully intact. 
I contend that a process of capacitation is required before the ICANN is achieved, that this is a fundamentally a product of social, socially reproductive labour. Trans and disabled people in particular struggle with this aspect of social reproduction. End quotes. As such, the I cannot looms larger for trans and disabled people as society creates debilita- quotes, debilitating end quotes, conditions for them. Belinsky builds upon social reproduction theory and upon a social theory of disability. As states increasingly strip away social welfare programs, this hits groups such as trans and disabled people hardest. Quotes, the stripping process constitutes part of a generalized crisis of care as capital appropriates more and more workers working waking hours for surplus value extraction and incorporates more and more women into the workplace, making them less able available to carry out the unwaged labor of social reproduction. This crisis of care makes the reproduction of the proletariat one of contemporary capitalism's central contradictions. On the one hand, the bourgeois needs the proletariat to continue to exist in order for the process of capital accumulation to continue. On the other hand, the bourgeoisie and its representatives in the form of the state are increasingly unconcerned with the reproduction of the working class, the proletariat, to the extent that they undermine the capacities of the proletariat to reproduce itself. End quotes. Trans people become debilitated through being deprived of a socially recognized identity. They face misgendering, mistreatment, harassment, assault, and firing, exclusion, limited social validation. Trans people's oppression has direct material as well as ideological and psychological impacts. This has profound impacts on their phenomenological capacities and world and relationship to labor. The focus on pain, neglecting pursuit of pleasure in this chapter is one-sided and Belinsky overstates the revolutionary potentials for her insights. Nonetheless, the chapter builds its insights usefully on Merleau-Ponty. As revolutionary socialists, we are primarily concerned with changing the world. Yet understanding our experience is a starting point for many in working out if and how to do so. A more rigorous phenomenology centred on empowerment and a Marxist analysis society can help. Transgender Marxism is a hit and miss. Some chapters probably aren't worth reading. Others are worth reading and rereading. It does not build a truly radical and liberating class struggle activist and critically theoretical anti-Stalinist and revolutionary internationalist Marxist approach to trans politics. Such an approach is possible and is needed. But valuable ideas about how, why and how trans people exist and relate to class struggle can push us in that direction. No race baiting Red-Baiting or Queer-Baiting, The Marine Cooks and Stewards Union by Michelle O'Brien, excerpt from Trans Work, Employment Trajectories, Labour Discipline and Gender Freedom, Transgender Marxism. On the passenger ocean liners of the 1930s, male workers undertook tasks otherwise considered women's work when done in the home cooking and serving food to the passengers' laundry and janitorial work. 
On some boats, African-American men were hired for these reproductive social tasks, much like their contemporaries working as railroads porters. On other lines, Chinese men took up this work. Under the white supremacist cultural logic of the US black and Chinese men were already considered feminine and appropriate for women's work. But some of the ocean liner companies prided themselves on maintaining a white workforce, offering an elite experience to a white and racist clientele. Few white men, however, would demean themselves by doing such feminized work. Their employers already consider this type of work somehow queer. It is here that white, gender non-conforming, effeminate men manage to get a foothold in the industry. These stewards found a solidarity and support among fellow queens, coming to incorporate drag parties, homoeroticism, and soon a defense of gay rights into their work life. Over workplace struggles through the 1930s, ocean liner service workers formed the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union, bridging these feminized black men, Chinese men and white queer men into a Communist Party-allied militant labor union. These militant workers organized under the slogan, No Race Baiting, Red Baiting or Queer Baiting. <laughs>